This is the Dallas Morning News. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Dallas Morning News. Hello, everybody. Welcome into Sports Day Insider presented by the Dallas Morning News. I am Kevin Sherrington, joined by my pals, Evan Grant and David Moore. Evan, uh, how's everything going at the house there? This week in the money pit, um, <laughs> we're, we, we had a gas leak. I came home to a gas leak, Kevin. Came home through uh, Sunday night through the horrendous storms uh, to find out we had a gas leak. And um, let me just, here's my advice for all the prospective homeowners out there. Don't have gas leaks. Okay, that's good I, advice. I will say that to this point, the house is not blown up. It has not, as Bill Elliott once told me when I asked him what happened to his car as he was walking to the garage in Daytona. He said, "Well, she just blew it up." <laughs> um, I use that quote too. It's my favorite quote of all time. But uh, just don't have a gas leak. That's about all I can say. It's just not. There's a lot of people that get involved in. We're now waiting for the city of Dallas who told me, well, usually our inspectors come out between 8 and 4.30 p.m. I'm like, so basically you're telling me I just need to sit around the house all day. And she's like, uh, yeah. Sit around this house, it's about to blow up. Listen, um, if, if, if we should get a, a large bang and then silence, we'll just carry on the podcast without you, okay? Do it in my memory, please. Uh, the, okay, the, sure. the bottom line is that apparently the leak is fixed, but once the leak gets fixed, the city has to approve it. Then once the city approves it, you call Atmos and they come back out and turn the gas on. So uh, we're we're in moving from phase one to phase two at this point in time. Well, that's good to know. My question is, when will your next hot shower be, or will you just not shower until that that moment occurs? I don't know. That's the that I mean. Look, it, I I I took my shower this week. I, I'll be okay for another five <laughs> six days, right? Well, um, David, I'm going to ask. So, so your you last shower was, was in Florida. Shower. Is that what you're saying? Yes, my last shower was in Florida. Um, I, I it's. Uh, there are some people who are programmed for home ownership. I think the two of you being responsible adult human males <laughs> and females. Uh, yes, you're you're perfectly wired for home ownership. I don't know that I'm capable of doing this. I I, I don't I don't know. It um, seems you seem to have some, had a string of issues. There's toil. There's exploding toilets. There's bad carpets. <laughs> uh, there's leaks. There's just it doesn't. Homes don't like me. So, um, it's anyway. The ghost, it's the ghost of uh, of uh, Clyde Barrow. That's what it is. Coming down the, the street. Ghost of Clyde Barrow. Yeah, it might be. I, I, I don't know what it is, Kevin. Maybe I should start taking better care of the home. Maybe that would help. <laughs> yeah, that's that's true. You know, when I when I first started to say the ghost of Clyde Barrow, I almost said the ghost of David Clyde. I, either <laughs> one would work. David is still alive, of course. But, he is. Uh, he's going to be in Arlington this month, actually. For that's the, what I hear. The for the 50th anniversary, anniversary of the uh, of the David Clyde game, and game. we were talking, we were talking in the department about writing a 50th anniversary story. And I said, "Well, I did the 25th, and uh, I think Brad did the 40th. You may have done one also, but just about anybody who's been around Sports Day for a while has, at some point in time, written the anniversary." of David Clyde's major league debut. The, the anniversary of the ruining of David Clyde's career, basically. Yes. So, uh, so anyway, well, that'll be interesting. Well, Evan, we hope you get all those things worked out. Uh, so speaking of things that blowed up, uh, the uh, the Rangers uh, 
looked like they were cruising all the way to an easy win in the third inning on Monday night, uh, and they're up five to one. And then next thing you know, it's uh, five to five, and in the extra innings, and then the Rangers ended up losing nine to six because Shohei Otani is the greatest talent in baseball, uh, and he showed that again Monday night, hitting two home runs uh, and putting that game out of reach of the Rangers. Yeah, you know, there were there were several things that went wrong in that game, Evan, and uh, and I know you weren't out there because you were dealing with your uh, issues there uh, at home, but. Um, one would be Usually, that for the, yes, yes, yeah. Well, for the second day in a row, uh, a Ranger starting pitcher couldn't throw strikes uh, and couldn't uh, couldn't locate his pitches. Uh, first bit was Martin Perez on Sunday, uh, who had a very poor game, and then Dane Dunning, who didn't necessarily pitch poorly, but uh, was and was helped out by a couple of double plays. But he was just putting too many guys on base. Uh, it almost seemed like uh, the both pitchers in both cases, it might have just been a matter of, you know, just not being able to locate their pitches as simple as that. But it also seemed a little bit like they were afraid to challenge some of these guys. Uh, and then in Martin's case, he was coming over the when he was throwing strikes, he's throwing them right down the middle. Uh, Dane Dunning was uh, not quite as bad as that. And like I said, he left things in pretty good shape. But until an error, uh, and it, 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 unfortunately it went on Adolis Garcia on a fly out to right field. Uh, he throws to second base, and Marcus Simeon can't handle the throw. Ball gets away, and Mike Trout scores from third. That's what made the game 5-4, to four, uh, and it, had it not been for that, uh, the Rangers would have won this game in regulation. Uh, but, you know, something that kind of came up there for me a little bit, and this goes to the uh, uh, coaching strategy of, uh, of Bruce Bochy, is that the Rangers don't play much small ball. Uh, they, they don't steal a lot of bases and, and, you know, well, they, obviously they, they, when you score runs like they can, that's, you know, maybe you don't need to do that too much, but there are going to be times when you have to do that. Uh, they don't, they don't bunt much. Uh, they don't try to move runners over like runners over in that style. Uh, and then they had trouble getting the ball out of the infield. They hit some ball hard in the extra innings with a runner at second base. Uh, but they weren't hitting fly balls. I also thought that, you know, in in in, uh, in the extra innings that there was a when uh, they had a runner at second base and there was a fly ball hit to Mike Trout in center field. And I got to tell you, I'm going to run on Mike Trout. He's a he's one of the greatest players ever, but he's he has he's got a below average arm in in center field, and I'm going to challenge him. The Rangers don't seem to want to do much of that. So I want to get your thoughts about. Uh, the you know the coaching philosophy of Bruce Bochy is it more along the lines of you know this is what we do and so therefore I'm going to live by this we're gonna we're gonna hit or does his history I can't really remember involve much small ball well I I think Bochy's I, I would disagree with you on a couple of elements I, I do think that they play pretty good fundamental baseball um, in terms of moving. Oh, no, I don't mean they're not, not playing good fundamental baseball, but I think with, they're not playing much small ball. That's two different, with, with, two different things. But they, I mean, they move runners with contact and they have hit the ball to the right side when the infield's been back and all of that. Um, and they, they've done a good job of getting the ball in the air. I do think that, and I asked Bochy about this this weekend in Tampa, because, you know, when you looked at those two teams at the Rays and the Rangers, the one area where there was a big, big difference was in steals. Tampa led the major leagues in stolen bases. The Rangers were, I think, 25th. And this team hasn't run much. It hasn't needed to run much, but it also hasn't run much when it's had the ability. I think these are some of the things that with some of their some of their above average uh, speed guys, particularly Tavares, um, uh, and even Bubba Thompson, when he was up here, they aren't yet great base stealers. They are fast runners, but they're not great base stealers. And I think Bochi is much more um, attuned to, look, if we're going to steal, I want to be successful. I, I'm, I'm not going to give out outs on the bases um, with charity. I think he's a guy who wants an 80% stolen base rate. And so if, if, if those guys don't have great leads and if they can't swipe a base when they need to, I think he's going to dial it back a bit. And it has, he hasn't 
hasn't needed to happen that often. I the one place where I kind of thought about something last night was in the ninth inning. You know, you you've got the best hitter on the club. Bottom of the ninth, Corey Seager reaches base. If I was going to do anything running-wise, that might have been where I would have put Josh Smith in um, and run for Seager there and tried to win the game there rather than betting that Seager was going to come up again in the 10th or the 11th or, or as it turned out, the 12th. They didn't. And when they did use Seager, when they did use Smith to run later in the game, that's when you're saying they didn't run on Mike Trout. Um, I don't know. That ball was... That was going to be a difficult ball to run on. It was a little bit, a little bit shallow, not super shallow. But I know what you're saying. Look, you want to make Mike Trout make make a great throw. Um, and it wasn't a great throw either, right? I, I, I think that that yeah. I mean, if if we're if we're going to label Bochi in any way, I think yeah, he's going to play on the side of caution. Doesn't want to give outs, and when you've got an offense that's been as efficient as his has until the last four days or so. That's pretty much that's pretty much a smart a smart philosophy. But I do think there are going to be some times here, as particularly as the Rangers get into more and more close games and play more teams with winning records, that they're going to have to figure out some ways to win games close. And so they will have to do a little bit more small ball type stuff um, in, in, in those situations. Yeah, because you know that was, that came up in the in the series against Tampa Bay, right? You're running into good pitching. Tyler Glass now is the first win of the year, but. You know, he's got a great track record. He's a really good pitcher. Uh, you know, uh, so, you know, they're going to shut that down. So at some point you're going to have to do those other things. I just thought that was a, a, a little questionable for me. I, the ball was was hit shallow to center field. But like I said, Trout was going the opposite direction. He's running away from, from the play. And he, and, he made a, and he made a poor throw. It was a, kind of a looping throw that was about 10 feet wide of third base. And to me, that's the kind of situation that that's a smart – that would have been a smart move, knowing that that's Mike Trout out there and knowing that he doesn't have a great arm and he's running away from the play. Uh, to me, that's the kind of, uh, of chance I'm going to take. The second thing I had the issue with was was removing Ezekiel Duran from the game. We don't know why that was. That game was late, and so Sean McFarland to cover the game didn't have that. I haven't talked to Sean. I don't know if that question was asked. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, Zeke had hit a three run homer early in the game, uh, to give the, uh, the Rangers their early lead. Um, and, uh, I don't want to take his bat out of the lineup. You know, I realize that, that Travis Jankowski is having a nice year, but this is a little bit fluky for me, right? I think that Zeke Duran's credentials as a hitter are pretty good already. And I, and I, I think you're picking that that was a little early. On that one, I think you're picking a little bit of nits right there, only because of this. Zeke had batted in the bottom of the six. His spot was going to be up. Was going to be up. I think he would have been eighth after that because he he, he made the second last out of the, of the bottom of the six. He got a one run game. Zeke's not yet a great defender in the outfield. Um, the 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 uh, the Angels bullpen is heavy on right handed pitching. After they had taken Tyler Anderson out, he was probably going to be facing right-handed pitching, um, and so there were some situations there that would say, "Hey, run product, run reduction here is at a higher premium than run production." Because if you protect that lead, you may only have two more at bats. You may only have the seventh and eighth, and Duran may not hit again. So I, I do think that listen, given. Given the situation and everything, based on the fact that he had some oblique soreness, you want to find out if there was an oblique issue. But from where I'm sitting, uh, in that situation, one-run game, guy may not come up again. Uh, And if he does, he's probably going to be facing a right-handed pitcher. Don't have an issue with Jankowski there. Um, I think the bigger issues that I have yesterday are not so much Bochy decisions. And I I, I think, look, given... Given where the Rangers are, I know expectations have changed, and, and, and we can talk about that a little bit. But I, I, I think that pretty much every time a manager makes a decision, they've got some kind of rational thought process there. We may agree or disagree. My biggest issue last night is, you know, you get to a situation where you've got to turn the game over to a multi-inning pitcher um, in extra innings, 
and you've got to go to Cole Reagans. And Cole has just not pitched much because of the starting uh, rotation, because it's been so good. And when you do need that multi-inning pitcher, I just don't know if it's impacted his effectiveness. He's given up four home runs now in the last uh, 11 innings, I think, over the last 30 days. And I do wonder if it if it makes more sense for him to, in this situation, go back to the minor leagues, pitch every fifth day, build up, especially because this team is going to need rotation help, and the Rangers uh, go in a different direction for a long reliever. I don't know if they if if they have the flexibility to do that right now, but that would be the one roster question or the one decision I'd have a question about off of last night's game. Um, uh, that's the only thing that really stands out for me. Yeah, that's that's a great point uh, about uh, Reagan's because he, to me, he just seems like he's lost all his confidence too. Uh, you can just tell him the body language is bad. That's a uh, hard just, role, man. It's a really hard role. And, and to, to be a long mop-up type guy on a good team when you're pitching very infrequently and, you know, then all of a sudden they're usually low-leverage situations and now you got to come into a high-leverage situation in extra innings. It's a tough, tough role to be in. Yeah, I just think that was a bad loss for, for the Rangers. Uh, to be up 5-1 uh, to one in the third and to lose that game 9-6 to six and 12, because now you've gotten into your bullpen, you're already going to be in a problem with your bullpen today uh, for Tuesday's game because John Gray's not pitching. So it was just, you know, it, it's just one thing after another in that game. You know, Corey Seager makes an error. You know, uh, Yuri Rodriguez is going to get out of that inning in one pitch. One pitch, you know. And 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 Seager boots the ball. You know, it's it's things like that. It just felt like uh, just what you know. Of course, I'm watching that from afar. I'm watching it on TV. It just felt like that game that the Rangers kind of you know were not seizing the moment in this thing. They were. It's, they a, weren't it's making a game the they should have won. They should. It's yeah. a game they they should have won, no doubt. And listen, it, it goes back to me to this. This is a test of a schedule that starting with that Tampa Bay series. They've got 20 or 29 games going into the All-Star break against teams that had winning or above at 500 or above 500 records. Uh, the Tampa Bay series was a trying series um, because Tampa Bay is like it's like facing the Rangers. The at-bats are a grind and they will run and they can pitch. Uh, then you go straight into the Anaheim series and look, you know, uh, the, the Angels the Angels are by far not a are, are not a perfect team by any stretch of the imagination. But when you've got the best player in game and the second best player in the game, perhaps in the same lineup, that creates some issues. Um, so yeah, this is a test of a, of a stretch for the for the Rangers, and um, it's not been a good start losing four of the last five. Uh, and you you know when you take a four run lead. The only thing I can say is when you take a four-run lead at home, if you're a good team, you should put that game away. But even good teams are going to lose some games that they should win, and that one goes down as, as a bad loss for this point in time in the season. Yeah, it is. Uh, and it's on top of the of the series with Tampa Bay, which is not necessarily a bad series, but it's just that, well, you come back home from that and you want to get off on a good foot here. In a four-game series now, you, you want to do better than a split you know, against the Angels. You want to take three. Well, now you got to win the next three, and that's going to be really hard to do. I think the best thing that can happen to them now is a split. Uh, I think it's going to be really hard for them to win Tuesday as we're taping this on Tuesday morning, and we'll see where they go from here. So, Evan, um, what else are uh, – do you have any concerns about anything for for the Rangers at this point? Uh, you know, we, we've talked about, you know, uh, obviously the, the same things are still on the uh, on the horizon here. Uh, at, at closer, you know, I, I I wrote this in our preseason stuff that I, I would the Rangers would go after Alexis Diaz as a closer at the deadline. Now the Reds are suddenly playing so well and in, and running there in the uh, uh, in the pitiful NL Central, and and so are the Pirates for that matter. And as you made David David Bednar one of your targets for a closer, same thing. Uh, you know, with the way Ellie De La Cruz is playing now for the Reds. Uh, the Reds can't, in any good conscience, give up on this season at this point. He's the feel-good story in baseball right now. The way he's playing, he looks like Superman out there. So, uh, so the market's really starting to uh, constrict a little bit, isn't it? 
I, well, I mean, the market just hasn't developed, right? I mean, and, and if the Reds, there's a long way to go until the deadline, and the Reds and the Pirates certainly could could fall out of contention. Though the way the Central is shaping up, unless Milwaukee gets really hot, I don't see that being uh, that being realistic for the next month. For me, if anything, it puts more pressure on the Rangers to make a decision about the Kansas City pitchers, um, Scott Barlow and Aroldis Chapman. Um, I think Barlow is controllable past this year. There's some there's some appeal to that, um, but Kevin, I, I I don't know. You know, we talked on Sunday as I was trying to get to the airport in in Tampa um, about this past series with the Rays, and I think if anything, the series with the Rays made me a little bit more concerned about the Rangers starting pitching and a little less concerned about the bullpen, you know, uh, Martin Perez has been uneven now for a month. Um, Andrew Heaney has been good. He had a rough start on Friday night against Tampa Bay. Uh, but the Rays crush left-handed pitching and Heaney and Perez are two lefties. If the Rangers were to play them in, in a playoff series at this point in time, one of those guys is going to have to be in your rotation. And my question would be, do you need to do you need to look at going out and getting a right-handed starter for the idea that Tampa Bay crushes right-handed pitching, you're going to or crushes left-handed pitching, you're going to face the Rays here in July leading up to the deadline. Houston crushes left-handed pitching. You got the Astros here uh at the end of June, start of July, and then you've got them again in Houston leading right up to the deadline. Do you need to consider the possibility of Hey, we need to tweak the rotation. Get a right-hander up here. Get a right-hander in here, and and make ourselves uh, more viable against those teams for this for that stretch that you'll have in July, and also for the possibility that you're going to face them in the playoffs. I still think this is a team that, as much as Will Smith has done for this club, I, I think it's a club that I that I would like to have a guy with a with bigger velo um, and more ability to miss bats. Uh, in the closers role, I think on a championship roster construction, Will Smith is probably your late inning left-hander, but I think you'd like to have a, a, a big arm as, as your closer. Uh, so those are the two things that the Rangers have to monitor, and it's it's just hard to make deals in early to mid-June. There's a premium that you've got to pay. I don't know, like we just said, that the market is fully developed or really primarily developed yet. And I, I think we've mentioned this on a previous podcast, but the way that the the system has changed now with the draft being pushed into mid-July, so many teams, particularly teams that have high draft picks, the Rangers having the fourth overall pick, have guys pretty much locked up on amateur scouting, even their top evaluators locked up on amateur scouting into late June. And so it makes it harder to go out and really get the guys who's – whose opinions you trust to see other potential trade targets. And so that makes it, that makes it a little bit more complicated to make a trade right now. So those are all the the obstacles that I think Chris, Chris Young is running into. I think they're, I think the needs are real. And I think that the, the obstacles are real as well. All right. Let me ask you this really quick before we get out of this Rangers thing and, and try to speak in better sound bites here. Uh, Shane Bieber. Do, do, do you go out and make a big, bold move like that? That's a Cliff Lee kind of move to me, uh, especially when you take into consideration that Jacob deGrom is now going to miss the rest of this year and probably most of, if not all, of next year. And, uh, and Bieber is controllable for now. Uh, do, you, do, you, you go, do you go all in for something like that? Or do you feel like – and I because I've got to tell you, I'm, I'm just torn by that. Do you make a move – something like that and you, and you use all your resources up on a trade like that, you're probably not going to have anything left to make a big move for your bullpen. Yeah. I don't think that right now, if I was going for a starter, I'd be looking to, to go all in on a starter. I think I would be looking to make an addition, but not necessarily go all in. And I'm not convinced that the Indians, the Indians, the guardians are going to trade Bieber. I also know that I've read some reports that have said that he's had a little bit of a dip in velo as well. So that's um, true. I, I'm I'm not real convinced that that's the direction I'd go. If I got a if I went for a starting pitcher in June, it would either have to be a guy that uh, is long term control, uh, 
you know, the guy who has interest to me is Dylan Cease, if the White Sox would trade him. Now, he's had some command issues as well, but that's the kind of, there's long-term, there's long-term control there. There's big velo. Uh, those are the kinds of guys that I might be more interested in making a deal for at this point in time than Bieber. I, I think the Indians would have to be really guardians. The Indians, good lord, the Guardians would have to be really swayed at this point in time to, to part with Bieber, and I think that's going to cost you more than you'd like to pay. Yeah, it might it might do that, but I tell you, I would certainly push for that. And I, and you know, because you're right about the velocity, it is down, and he has to hit the corners, but he has been doing that very well, and his you know his numbers are still very good. Uh, so overall, he. He kind of, to me, fits the mold of what the Rangers are trying to do now, a guy with good control, uh, not putting guys on base. And that's, frankly, where the Rangers have gotten in trouble the last few nights. Uh, you know, uh, their, their starting pitchers are just not uh, locating their pitches, and they're putting runners on base, and it's just uh, causing problems. Uh, I think, you know, when, when you're playing well, when Dane Dunning is pitching well, for instance, you know, it, it's quick. He, get, he, gets the, he works quick. You know, he's efficient. He's throwing strikes, and and that's good for everybody behind him. I think when that thing starts to slow down, and you're walking guys, and you're walking leadoff hitters, you know, I just think that that just it, it gets the Rangers and it gets any team out of their rhythm and what they want to do. Uh, they would, they don't feel like they're in in the place where that they've been successful so far this year. And so when that happens, I think that's what uh, that's what starts to generate some of these problems. All right, that's going to do it for our Rangers talk uh, today in our segment. We're going to move on now and talk about the Cowboys. Uh, David, the, the Cowboys are all out of mini camps, OTAs, uh, ETAs, uh, DTs, everything else. Uh, it's all it's all over now until training camp. Remind us when does training camp start again? It'll start uh, that last uh, full week in July, so around July twenty fourth, twenty fifth is when the team will be going to Southern California. And so you will be in Oxnard. How many times have you been to Oxnard, David? <sighs> I'd have to count that up, Kevin. You, you you hit me with one. I would have to go back. Um, he does these tough, hard-hitting questions. This is what made me the journalist I am today. Asking when the first one, but, but, but I would say uh, probably at least the last uh, 11, 12 years. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And you went a few times to Thousand Oaks as well. I did. Yeah, so you spent you spent a lot of time in uh, uh, Southern California. In- I missed the Austin years, but I uh, was fortunate enough to get those two glorious training camps in Wichita Falls. <laughs> I don't want to <laughs> listen. I've spent the last twenty years in Surprise, and five years before that in Port Charlotte. I don't want to hear about the two years in Wichita Falls, David. No, let me tell you something. My for seven family. consecutive practices, the heat index, even though one of the, even though three of those practices started at like six at night, the heat index was a hundred and four or above for seven consecutive practices. Yeah, I'm gonna tell you something. My mother's from Henrietta, which is right outside Wichita Falls. Yeah, and all my family, my mother's family, grew up up there. Not, not a great place. Just let me say that. <laughs> Not a great place. Uh, so anyway, great people. Let me let me add that. Great people. A lot of brags running around up there. Uh, love love the welcome uh, catfish fry. That was always nice those two years. <laughs> yeah. I remember one of those Wichita Falls training camps, uh, uh, Jerry Jones came back and it had just been reupholstered. Uh, don't you remember that? Well, I do remember that because uh, at that particular juncture, I had uh, just left for a uh, brief tour of duty at uh, Fox Sports when they started up their website, being their uh, NFL reporter. And so I did many different camps. And that was the that was the uh, really the first offseason at that time where no one had heard or seen of Jerry in quite a while. And people were wondering, well, what, what's, this is so odd. This is so unusual. And, and stories started to circulate that, that maybe he had uh, spent some time in California with uh, maybe uh, some doctors to get some, uh, some upgrades, <laughs> uh, some tweaks. Uh, so anyway, no one had seen him for like, you know, since, you know, for like three, four months. Um, we're in Wichita Falls. 
and I'm there in, for Fox for a couple of days, and it's like, uh, oh, well, yeah, we can shoot something on camera or something. Why, he, why don't, and again, talk about a different time, drop by his dorm room. Well, you know, set up in his dorm room. He's going to come in. He'll just, you know, hit. So it's like, uh, so, uh, so I'm in the dorm room waiting for him, and he bursts through the door. First time I've seen him in like four months, and uh, I, I remember. I hope he doesn't notice my jaw on the ground as I'm picking it up, <laughs> and I'm just frozen, going, "Hey, Jerry, <laughs> that is Jerry, isn't it?" <laughs> well, he was a new man he was a new man yeah in some ways anyway not enough but in some ways he was. <laughs> so so david uh by the time the we really start uh, reporting on the cowboys again we, we talk about them constantly but uh by the time the training camp comes in give me your three biggest questions that the cowboys have to answer by training camp or in, in training camp, let's just say. Yeah. That. through sure. Yeah. Cause I, I don't know that much will be answered here before. Al- no. Although uh, one of them, so we won't go in any particular order. Um, they, they do need to sign another kicker to take the training camp. Um, yeah. You know, the, the fact that at this point there are several veterans on the market and they have not signed them leads you to believe that, the kicker they would like to bring in for the competition with Viscano, who is here now, uh, is in the USFL and is still uh, under contract and, and still part of a league that's playing. So uh, once the USFL season's over, much like last year, uh, you know, when they made the move and brought in Turpin and had to wait for that season to be over, um, you know, we'll watch that unfold. But But they're not going to go through camp with only one kicker. They will sign another kicker to bring to camp. Um, but I know people are going, well, why not bring Robbie Gould in? Why not bring Maher back? He's still out there. Why not, you know, um, go with uh, Crosby? He's out on the market. Um, I think if that's what they wanted to do, they would have already have done it. So uh, I I think bringing in a young kicker from the USFL or monitoring some of the several kicking situations around the league – in training camp and picking up the loser of one of those battles, if they're interested in, uh, probably looks more like the way they're going to go. But that that would be one of, if you want to throw out three things. Um, you know, another, and this won't happen before camp, but but I, I think it, 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 it would certainly benefit the Cowboys if it happens in camp. They have a lot of big money contracts coming up, and – they don't want them hitting all at once. And I really feel out of C.D. Lamb and Trayvon Diggs, they need to sign one of those players to a long-term deal before the season is underway. Uh, Because then when you're going forward, uh, the leverage you have with the franchise tag, uh, everything else, um, I just think it's not imperative, but... um, if they don't get one of those two players signed before the season is underway, suddenly you look up at the end of next season. Uh, Diggs is going to be a free agent, can go on the market. So you're, if you don't sign him immediately, you have to use the franchise tag on him. Um, you know, Lamb's going into the last year of his deal. It just gets very complicated with Micah Parsons still there on the horizon and uh, knowing you need to redo. Uh, Dak Prescott within the next, you know, 12 to, to 16 months. So, uh, a- and I think preferably for how they're lined up, you would prefer to sign Diggs and get that taken care of and then move on and, and, and do land. But, but I do think it'll be a situation where they'll probably negotiate both and whichever one they feel they're closer to on getting something done is how they'll proceed. So, okay. Let- Talk about that for a second because I, sure. I think that's interesting and it's a great point about you know the order here because remember they got it all out of order with Zeke Kelly and Dak Prescott uh, yes and that that was a that made a mess of everything uh, it did and, and and because because uh, um, um, Zeke called their hand prematurely and they broke 
their protocol on how they usually proceed and negotiated a year early on Elliot. And then it just stacked things up differently on the runway and gave them issues going forward and trying to get uh, Prescott settled. Yeah. So to me, you know, uh, what's interesting about this, and I've been a, a, a Trayvon Diggs fan. I, I like him. I think he's a good kid. I think he's smart. He, you know, he, he probably gambles a little too much, but, but I think he got a lot of ability. Um, but I got to tell you, I could see them saying uh, the price of, of wide receivers is just going up and up and up. Uh, and, and the longer we wait on him, probably the harder that's going to be. I could see them get, uh, doing a contract with CD if they can. Like you said, you, you feel them both out, but uh, doing a contract with CD and then put the tag on Trayvon next year to say, hey, let's see you do it again. Uh, because – Obviously, the number of interceptions went way down last year. Some of that's because they're they're not testing quite as much, and and some of it's just because interceptions are fluky, and we know that uh, they they don't always represent what a guy's doing and how well he's playing. True, uh, they are fluky, but he did something no player in the league has done for forty years, and so oh, you know, that that should not be minimized from two years ago. Yeah, so no, it, it should not. And I, so that's I guess my question. Let, let me start it with this then. So. I've just laid out kind of the situation with, with contracts there. Who's the better player in his position? Do you think that CD is better at wide receiver, or do you think that Trayvon is better at cornerback? It doesn't matter what I think. It matters the signals I'm getting from within the organization. And I believe the, I believe if the organization is ranking who they would have to take the money out of it, who they feel they definitely have to be part of this going forward, they would rank C.D. Lamb ahead of Trayvon Diggs. Yeah, I think so, um, so I, I think that's, that's why I would not rule out them reaching a contract with Lamb this offseason, and, and for the reasons you mentioned as well, uh, before Diggs, although if you look at how they're stacked up on the runway now, you would prefer Diggs get done before Lamb. But I, I will say I think they feel that they feel it's absolutely imperative that that C D Lamb be a part of this going forward. I think they really, really want Diggs to be part of it going forward, but that's not imperative, right? So I, I think yeah. there's a small distinction there from from my read of the situation, uh, from how they're viewed uh within the organization. And Jerry always sides on with offensive players. Uh now I, I, I he, he does, does but he's gonna have to make a commitment to the defensive side of the ball that he hadn't in a long time with Well he's gonna uh, have to really make one with Micah Parsons. There's he's no gonna way. do it with Parsons and and uh Diggs too. And 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 if you move on from Diggs, that's fine. But do you have his replacement here? Uh nope. you know. Uh, no, unless you're, no, you're willing to and, and how much longer is Stephen Gilmore who you got in going to be here? So suddenly you could look up and you could go from arguably one of the best corner combinations in the league with Gilmore and Diggs. If you're not careful here, you can look up in two years and be starting over at corner with some yeah. unproven guys. There's no question that you want to keep all three of, the, uh, of those guys that you mentioned, uh, C.D. Lamb, uh, Trayvon Diggs, and, of course, you, get, you have to keep Micah Parsons. And, and, and that's the Micah Parsons ain't going anywhere. He's, you know he's here for sure. You're probably, you know, more than likely, C.D. Lamb's going to be here. Dak Prescott's not going anywhere. So when you have that many big contracts to juggle, it's not an indictment on Trayvon Diggs, but that leaves him in a little bit different situation than those other three that you know aren't going anywhere, right? Exactly. And that's the question about Micah Parsons is, is that how much money is he going to get? I've seen yeah. some outlandish numbers. He's going to get quarterback money. You know, that that's what it certainly sounds like. And so – how many defensive players are getting that kind of money in the league? So this is going to be a really difficult uh, thing for me to see going forward how the Cowboys can put this all together. When you've got uh, a guy, and, and, and he deserves that kind of money, frankly. That's the kind of player he is. But, you know, just becomes an issue. How do you, how do you split this up? They're going to lose some very good players they do not want to lose uh, because of the contracts that Lamb – uh, the restructured on Prescott and Micah Parsons are going to receive. Uh, and then that's where it comes back to drafting and, and you know, have, do, do you have someone ready and waiting in the wings? Um, they, I, I think we can say now that they missed with that second, third round combo of Kelvin Joseph and Nashawn Wright. But Deron Bland, 
uh, in the fifth round, the year after that kind of bails them out a little bit, right? So they still yeah. there's still someone in the pipeline there that that uh, you know that they feel at least good enough taking over, but th- that you can go from a position of strength to a position of weakness pretty quickly, uh, depending on how this whole thing with Diggs unfolds over the next two seasons. All right, before we get out of the Cowboys thing, I got to let you get your third item. I, I hijacked the whole conversation here. What was your third thing, David, that you said that the Cowboys are going to have to do uh, by the time of training camp? Well, I think everyone's going to – I mean, people are still focusing on the offensive line, right? And it's like, who's going to be left guard? To me, it's not necessarily who's going to be left guard. I mean, uh, this team's been 12-5 and five and had two different left guards over the last two years. I, I think they can be 12-5 and five again with a third – uh, left guard in there. I don't think it says, I think it's more the, who is it going to be more than a, well, God, this, this position is going to kill us uh, is what a lot of people, fans seem to be saying. And, and I, I think that's probably elevating a little bit too much because of the rest of the talent there, but, but how that shakes out, who's going to be at that position or whether they go back to um, what they seemed they would prefer not to do, which is just move Tyron Smith to left tackle and, and uh, Tyler Smith to left guard and, and fill it that way. So that, that would be the other, how, how the offensive line shakes out, who the kicker is. Uh, since no one gets real excited about, you know, contract stories in training camp, let me throw out one that'll be on the field. And are they comfortable with who they have on the team now to fill the running back position? Or do they need to supplement that position? Yeah, you know, people are still talking about Zeke Elliott coming back. Uh, I, I I don't see that happening. No, uh, and I, I don't know what they're going to do there. Uh, you know, I'm I'm interested to see what kind of role Deuce Vaughn can play. Uh, yeah. I, I was really intrigued by him uh, in college. He reminded me so much of, of Darren Sproles. Same college, same kind of production. Uh, Except he hadn't been a return guy, which is how Sproles kind of made his niche to allow him to be the running back and and thread out of the backfield as a receiver that he was, uh, which leads to another question. Uh, are Turpin and Vaughn both going to be on this team? And for Vaughn to really have a role, is he going to have to uh, be a returner? Uh, they have, they, in the, in the you know, OTAs and, and minicamp, they used him at returner uh, to get him used to it. But that's something how he, how he has he not look? done. So I think how that'll be look? interesting to watch in camp. What did you think of him in that role? How did he look? Didn't see him that enough to get a to get a feel. You know, they they, yeah. they weren't flying around. It was basically just go back and field it. it. It wasn't it wasn't traffic in front of him. So yeah, well, see, that's that's the issue as you brought up about Turpin is that you know he's not getting in the games. Uh, he's not getting any reps at receiver. He's getting a couple. How's he going to be active? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. But you, can you really afford to carry him if he's just going to be a returner? You know, he's going to have to be outstanding in that, and he has shown. Uh, you know, capability of being outstanding. He's also shown that, you know, he's going to make some bad decisions occasionally. And if Deuce Vaughn's never done it, that's going to be really concerning to me. I I don't think that uh, in a team that has the aspirations the Cowboys do, they can afford to just say, hey, let's just throw this guy out here. He's never done it before and see how he does. was a Pro Bowl returner last year. And it'll be interesting. I think he clearly wore down as the season went along because he had no break, right? He came yeah. right from USFL. He came right from another league before USFL. He played football basically for an, a year and a half straight, including the NFL at the end. And so I think you saw some of that burst you saw in that excitement where he returned two kicks uh, in the preseason for touchdowns. Uh, didn't have that burst as the season went along, but in some ways I think that was completely understandable based on uh, how many seasons, uh, concurrent seasons he played. Yeah. All right, that's going to do it for our Cowboys segment. Here we're going to move over to a little bit of a potpourri here, boys. We all love to talk a little potpourri. We're going to start with the fact that the Nuggets have won the first championship in franchise history. They even brought Doug Moe back to celebrate this kind of stuff. Uh, it, it's kind of hard to believe that the Nuggets have finally won a championship. They, they, they've been a, a really good team over the years at times, but they, they've certainly never been the kind of team you think about, right? They, they kind of just – kind of dismiss them a little bit as an organization. Well, as someone who uh, remembers the ABA days, which is uh, harder and harder to find people who do, um, <laughs> you always kind of view them in that light. And and while they had never won a title in the NBA, uh, they've had some pretty entertaining incarnations, right? 
And, oh, yeah. uh, you know, you brought up Doug Moe. Those teams were, um, you know, ahead of the curve offensively for where the league was at the time when they played. Uh, George Carl certainly had a very long, successful run there. But they were at that, they were that right below uh, championship level. Uh, they were always, but but a very entertaining franchise, really, in how they played, have been for a long time. And, uh, you know, them and the Spurs are two ABA teams uh, that were absorbed, that, that have gone on to win. Uh, you know, I, I saw this note today, and it was, uh, uh, it makes sense, but it, I, I really hadn't thought about it. Denver is the first team not in California or Texas to win the NBA championship out of the West since Seattle in 1979. Wow. Wow. So it just shows you now, again, Texas and California have more teams than the, uh, the, you know, uh, any other state, obviously West, but that's quite a prolonged run for, for a team, uh, you know, not in LA, uh, San Francisco, Houston, Dallas, or uh, San Antonio to, to win it. So uh, all the way back to 79. So it, it shows you how concentrated the power has been in the West and how Denver's kind of been on the outside looking in. Um, but but this was a, uh, again, uh, Jokic is such an impressive player. Um, and, and, th- and this run was really a, a, a testament to a different approach to building a championship team than what the Mavericks have taken. It's been about continuity and keeping uh, those players in place and being able to take their lumps and develop. It's taking a coach in Malone who was there for eight years. I, I don't know a lot of franchises that would have a coach for eight years who never came close to a title who would keep them in that position. So, a much different approach than what we've seen the Mavericks taken here uh, over the last uh, decade plus. Yeah, I think there are a lot of things to consider here for the Mavericks. And I want to talk about, you know, because uh, of the similarities and the possibilities. And anytime you get two European players, uh, people always want to compare. And even though they're, they're playing two different positions, they yeah. are triple-double machines. Uh, Luka they Dacic are. And Nikola Jokic, you know, that – so from that from that standpoint, they are they are similar. Uh, one is a point guard, even though a very large point guard, although maybe not as large as he has been, according to the pictures we see on Twitter. So maybe that's a good thing here if he's going to come back in a little better shape than what he's been in basically throughout his young career. Uh, and the other guy is a center. Um, you know, the feeling has always been that you want your best. In, in an ideal situation, if your best player is a guy that the ball is going to be going through his hands all the time, right? He doesn't have to have someone getting the ball. Uh, that's what you want. And that's even though we've talked about great centers in the past, that position has been diminished somewhat uh, over the years because of the three-point line and how that's changed basketball. And, and for somebody like me, not necessarily for the better. I, I, I liked it when, when you had – you had to have a center and you got to have a power forward and you got to, you got to have all these positions. And now you're just, no, we're just, we're going to put five guys out there who are just great athletes and can all shoot. I don't like that as much as when you had to find positions. I don't know. It just, it just bugs me a little bit, but if in this situation, you know, uh, is it, does this make it seem like to you, David, it is more doable for the Mavericks to win it all, or at least be in competition for it again next year, given what the Nuggets have done, or have the Mavericks already kind of put themselves in such a bad situation here with their, the you know, the problems they're going to have putting together a roster now uh, in the way they've already considering the steps they've already taken. Well, yeah. I don't know that they can do it next year from the standpoint of we're talking about continuity here, right? And mm-hmm. you know, Dallas went Dallas is only 12 months removed from an appearance in the Western Conference Finals. But now what is this team that's going to start next season? How is it going to compare to that team that went to the Western Conference Finals? There's going to hardly be any holdover key elements to that team. Uh so you know, they they put themselves in a position where 
Um, as we talked about before, it, if they don't re-sign Kyrie Irving here, I think they're in a huge bind uh, this upcoming season. I, I just don't know. To, to me, he was the fork in the road. And uh, um, you certainly have issues and a question of long-term viability on that road if you go with Kyrie Irving. But uh, your short-term, you're not helping yourself if you don't. So uh, and I think you put yourself even behind the curve even more. So, um, you know, if he comes back, you still have to fill out the roster, but those two are so talented. Yeah, you're, you're back in the mix, but then it's about uh, getting the right pieces around them and everyone playing that role and coming together quickly. Um, but, but to me, what, you know, again, I, I just think, Dallas has been too cavalier with what it had in place before, in my mind. And, and, and to me, Denver doing what they did shows that. Um, look, Jamal Murray's an outstanding player. Uh, a huge role in this title. He's never been an all-star. Who else was never an all-star? Jalen Brunson, who filled that role, who's now no longer here. Um, and, and, you know, the, the two players... Uh, they gave up to Brooklyn to get Kyrie Irving, who were a big part of of uh, the, that Dallas team making uh, its Western Conference Finals push the year before. So, you know, three key players, arguably three of your top four to five players from a team that went to the Western Conference Championship are now no longer a part of this. And so it's going to be a completely different tenor. Um you're going to be a better offensive team with Kyrie Irving if he comes back, but but then it's a little bit more difficult to find the – you don't just need role defenders then. You need some dominant defenders around Kyrie Irving and Luka Doncic if they're your two best players in order to get, them, get it to mesh the way you want it to, the way you've seen it in Denver and some other teams. So, so to me, Denver just went about it completely differently. It took a little bit longer. But now they're there, and you see that they're built to at least compete at that level for a while. You know, I don't, I don't think Denver's a great team by any means. When you look at the road they took to get there, um, they, they beat a, a number eight seed, uh, which is what number one seeds do in the first round. I get it. But then the way it broke, Phoenix was a number four seed. Uh, the L.A. Lakers were a number seven seed. And Miami, they faced in the finals, was a number eight seed. Uh, that was shocking that they came out of the East. So I think that, I don't even think arguably, I think that is the easiest road to an NBA title out of the West that any team has had in a long, long, long time. And uh, again, that's not to minimize where Denver is and what it accomplished, but I I think there's always... Uh, an inclination whenever a team wins and it has some good young players on to say, well, see, th- this team's going to be there for year in and year out. Um, I think they'll be in the conversation. I don't know that they'll necessarily be in the finals year in and year out here. I, I think that's going to be tough for them. Yeah, I do too. Now, Jokic is a, you know, listen, he's a generational player. I know there's been a lot of s- silly debate about, you know, how great he is. Look, no one's putting him in the Hall of Fame, but when you put up the kind of numbers that he has at his age and the way he's done it and the way he's played, uh, he, he's going to be in the conversation of one of the greatest centers ever. Um, and that's just based on uh, projections of him just continuing to do what he's doing. You know, his numbers have been better since he was named the MVP. Uh, so uh, I don't think well, it's interesting what the I, I think the three games in the playoffs where he had 40 points or more, they lost. Right. Yeah, exactly. And, and so, but he understands exactly. And you watch him early in games. He doesn't want to score much early in games. He wants to make sure everyone else gets involved and there's a flow to the game before he works his way back into it, which is what, you know, you, you had that push and pull with uh, Luca and Kyrie Irving this year. And look, they didn't play together long enough to work it out. Two great players like that who were conscientious about it. And I believe both of them are can work that out with time. They just didn't have enough time because of when the trade was made. But, but, you know, Jokic, the, the other thing that, that I think there's a comparison between Luca and uh, uh, the Joker is that they both play the game at a pace that is unique to them. Uh, they don't play at the same pace that the other stars in the league do. 
Uh, it's a bit of an off pace. And this is, it's too simplistic to say it's slower. That It's just a different pace. And they're very, they're outstanding at it. No one else can really match them at it. And whenever they get the ball in their hands, the game just moves differently than it does when when you see it go through the hand of like a, a lot of other great players. And 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 you saw it so much with with Jokic in the series. Uh, I've never seen a player have that many balls roll around the rim and go in. But the fact he does it every single game speaks to his soft touch. Uh, he knows how to use his body, and he's taking the time to move. Uh, position, get the angle until it comes just right, and, and then make his move. And you don't see a lot of American players do that. It's more sudden, right? You either catch and shoot or you catch and put it on the ground and drive. Um, you Both of these guys uh, look at the game a little bit differently, and I think it's why they're, they're both are impossible to defend. They really are. They are, and, and I, they're different games, though, too. You know, I, They I, are, I do, yeah. I, I do feel like Jokic is more of a facilitator than than Luca really is. Luca is primarily a scorer, uh, and and I think that uh, that's part of the issue here with this team is that you know it's it's had difficulty sometimes playing alongside of him. That's why Brunson was so great. You know that's yeah. why you know the Mavericks didn't understand that this was a the rare item a guy who's a who's able to play next to somebody on the floor. Uh, and and be the second fiddle, and then when he's when Luca's off the floor, he can take over and be the primary threat. And uh, the, the the Mavericks frankly undervalued that. I want us to go forward a little bit here, David, before we get out, because I want to talk about another sure. thing too that doesn't have to do with this. But uh, you know, it, it seems to me that of course what we've seen with the Mavericks over the years is that the, the team has been run pretty much at the whim of Mark Cuban, and, and for the most part, that's worked pretty well. Uh, but it, you know, it, it brought the, the the organization's first championship. I, I certainly don't want to diminish any of that. Um, but it would have helped, I think, if there had been somebody with some weight to counterbalance that. Donnie Nelson, I felt like, never really assumed the the true role as a general manager, as a guy making decisions and telling Mark, "This is what we got to do." It just goes back to the Antetokounmpo draft, where he said, "We got to take this guy," and Mark said, "No, you know, yeah. that that should never have happened." If 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 that's what Donnie said and that's what Donnie thought, Donnie should have been the final call on that. You don't see that happening any place else in basketball. You see it see it, it happening with the Cowboys, not as much as it used to, but you see it there. But you don't see it happening any place else. I'm wondering. Which I'm still here, surprised that Cuban doesn't come under under the level of criticism that Jerry Jones does because well, he's very sure. similar and the, the way Cuban runs it is very similar to way a younger Jerry presided over the Cowboys. I don't think as much these days, but but you're exactly right. There's there's not a counterbalance voice in the organization because Cuban's going to assert himself and make the call whenever he whenever he wants, which is his prerogative. Yeah. Well, I'm wondering, you know, we, we've never gotten this final. We've never heard of is, is Dennis Lindsay really been hired by the by the Mavericks or not? Uh, that was that was supposed to happen and there's never been an announcement about that. I'm assuming that means that it's not finalized. It's kind of hanging uh, out there, yeah. And it, and, it went, and again, um, Nico Harrison had never filled this role before. He's tied in with Jason Kidd. Uh, so there's not a, a gravitas there of the position, if you will, for a guy who has a, you know, this isn't a, this isn't a Pat Riley running things in Miami where you see this franchise recycle and come back up to the top every four to five, six years to, to be a serious contender. Uh, it's not like you've seen in some other organizations where Jerry West was presiding over organizations, um, you know, and, and some of the other good young general or managers. San Antonio, in the state. what they're doing there. Even the Sam Prestes in, say, like Oklahoma City. There, there's just not – or, or yeah, R.C. Buford and, and – uh, um, you know, in, in San Antonio there with Greg Popovich. You, you, you don't have that uh, sounding board. Look, I, I think I think Mark Cuban deferred to Don Nelson probably more than he wishes he would have early in his career, but now there's no one there. That, and and Rick Car I think he I think he deferred to Rick Carlisle in a lot of situations, but the dynamic was even a little bit different there. It's completely different now than what it was uh, when, when Don Nelson um, and, uh, and the Avery Johnson years. 
Yeah, no question about that. All right, we're going to talk about that some more in the, in the coming weeks, obviously. But before we get out of here, I did want to talk a little bit more about the just the bewildering uh, merger, although Jay Monahan, the PGA Tour commissioner, is not calling it that. He, he, he swears it is not a merger with LIV and with the PIF and the, and the Saudis. Uh, and he is just saying that they are just minority investors in this thing. And I say that that's like saying that Don Corleone is a minority investor in my restaurant. Uh, yeah, see how that works out for you long term. They, they've, they've sent a letter to Monaghan uh, has sent a letter to Congress say, basically saying that you guys bailed on us and you didn't come up with anything to help us out here. So we had to do this. We were running out of money. We would have, oh, you know, over several years of lawsuits, we would have just exhausted all our resources. And so we had to do this. What a marketing scheme this is, right? What what in the world are you going to be able to say now to recover from all of this? I just I'm fascinated by it because first of all, I cannot imagine Jay Monahan survives all this. I mean, surely the PGA Tour says you got to go, you got to go away, and we've got to get somebody else in here because you've been called a hypocrite, you've admitted you were a hypocrite, and uh, and how do we sell this going forward? I'm just fascinated by all of it. Yeah, and he, and he's he's not well liked by the players by and large. Uh, there there were issues there before, um, and and th- there are some serious divisions there in, in getting these two tours together next year. Uh, you know what repercussions will there be for the players who left? What rewards will be for the players who were loyal and didn't go? How far down does that go? Um, so that there are just so many things to work through. And I don't know that, that he has, that Moynihan any longer has the political acumen or certainly the backing in order to carry that off. Um, but again, this whole thing on minority investor, please, uh, they're the chairman of the board. They don't, they don't, they don't, yes, they don't have the voting block. But do you need to have the controlling voting block when you have the money? Because if you have the money, you just go, well, no, we're not going to give our money to this. So it doesn't matter if they're going to have the votes on something if you don't have the money. It's just, and and everyone else sees this and they can, they can try to paint it however they want. But, but this, this was more of a, this was more of a, I hate to say a hostile takeover because the PGA seemed very willing to do it. So I don't know how hostile it was. Well, that, but that's what it is. That You're right. From, certainly from a business standpoint, that's what it is. When, when you have sure. someone coming in and they are now uh, in the position they are when you didn't want them to be there. Then and you're yes. trying to spin it how you're still in control? Please. Yeah. No one is buying that. Absolutely no, no one. Yeah, so this will be really interesting to see how this plays going forward. I just don't, you know, it, it's going to be hard on the players and, and they're going to want to stick their heads in the sand and say, oh, I'm just a golfer. I, you know, I don't, I don't have anything to do with any of the rest of this. And, and, uh, but this just changes everything for me. I, I was, as I said last week, I was shocked that Jack Nicholas came out and said, Oh, this will be good for golf. It's like, Jack, you're not paying attention. This is, this is not good for golf. This is a, 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 a I don't, I'm not going to say it's a death blow, but when you have the tour saying that, well, we had to do this because we were going to run out of money defending ourselves. It's like, do you not have insurance? Well, and, then either, and then even Rory saying, well, I still hope live dies and goes away and that's what needs to happen. But look, their money is something we needed basically is what he's saying now, right? That, yeah. that you know, the money I mean, is I, what, but if, but if the money comes through the proper channels, then yeah, maybe we can accept it. Please. I think Everyone it's, comes it's all, out of this looking. It's all a mess. Yeah, it, it really is. And I, you know, I, I wouldn't have expected something like this to happen with golf. Uh, and, in some ways, it's, it's kind of funny, you know, the fact that it has. It's so ironic in a sport that, that prides itself so much on honor. Uh, you know, they talk about that in golf more than any other sport. Uh, and and now you're 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 in bed with these uh, these people, and uh, and I and when you look at, at what you know, even even the government has is looking at this now. You got congressmen looking at the fact that what the Saudis have expressed is all part of this sports washing as it's being called about uh, trying to legitimize uh, their, their efforts. What's their next target? You know, uh, you know, wh- where do they go next? I don't know if there's another sport 
that would would enable that to happen. Uh, most of them are, are, are locked up pretty tight. But now the PGA Tour, you know, Congress is looking at things like maybe you, we should uh, take away some of your exemptions here. You know, yeah, we'll still this, see how this shakes out. I, I think I still think there's a, a very rocky political road to be traveled uh, before this the the way is it's constructed right now actually happens and uh the, the uh, it's going to be fascinating and and we're going to be talking about golf a lot more than we have and for the wrong reasons here going forward <laughs> because th- there are still so many directions this deal can go or, or or really not come to fruition and if it doesn't come to fruition then what right yeah no you question know? about and, it and, and here, let's say it comes to fruition. Let's really jump ahead here. What What if the controlling, uh, the the people who control the sport with the money go, you know, yeah, we, we do respect the tradition of the masters and how they don't want, you know, the advertising, all this, but nah, we got to have it now going forward. You you got to come into the modern modern world on this one. We're just losing too much money with what should be our jewel, you know, crown jewel. So you've got to come around. Well, not only is that, that going to play? play? Yeah, absolutely. What if they What if they say, "Yeah, you know what? The Nelson's fine, but that's not a big That's not a big time tournament." Let's yeah. Uh, yeah let's get, let's do away that. with that. We'll We'll do this. Yeah. I mean, it's you know some of these that are kind of hanging on the edges here already. Uh, surely can't feel comfortable about all of this. Uh, so you know, I, I'm sure that the way they'll try to yeah, this is a minor is tournament. That, so you know, th- this would be look look. All, all of you guys really need to play in in this live event uh, over here now. For well, this that was, instead of go because that's what it was all constructed around, right? Sure. It was fewer tournaments. We're going to pay come on, yeah, fewer tournaments exactly. pay you more money. And if that if that's the model that they were going for with LIV, you know, of course Jay Monahan says, "Oh, we have final say on everything." Well, I'm, I'm like you. Yeah, yeah how we'll long see. will that last? We'll see how long we'll that see. lasts. This is going to be a big mess, and we're going to obviously keep monitoring that. All right, that's going to do it for our podcast this week. We thank you for listening. We always love the fact that you're out there uh, listening. I love hearing from people who saying that they uh, are tuning in every week. We appreciate that. Uh, we'll be back next week to talk more about the Rangers and see where they're sitting as they get closer to the trade deadline. Uh, we'll always be talking about the Cowboys. And then at Potpourri, you never can tell what that will stir up. So from everybody in here to everybody out there, thanks, and we'll see you next time. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.